You've got questions and I've got answers. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Friday. I am Matt Kopenheffer. I have no team with me here today. David Hansen is traveling for the long Memorial Day weekend. And all week you've been hearing from some of the other great uh, industry teams here at The Fool. But today, back to me. You're just, just with me. And you know what? Over the past few weeks, we've had some questions piling up in our WTM, uh, WTMI email box. And I thought I'd take an opportunity today to answer some of those questions. First question we've got comes from Tom in Dayton, Ohio. Tom wrote us, In a recent show, you provided a nine-point checklist for evaluating potential investments. Some of the points were easy to understand and assess, i.e. serves a large and growing market, has a competitive advantage, etc. One item on the list was that the company engaged in smart capital allocation. How do you judge this? I can think of a few things, buying back stock when the market undervalues the company, not overpaying for acquisitions, and so forth. But it seems this is best judged using the rearview mirror. Do you have any tips for how to do this on a forward-looking basis? It's a great question, Tom. Unfortunately, this and a lot of the other stuff that I talked about on that checklist are things that are best judged in, or, or most easily judged in the rearview mirror. So we want to try to find a balance between the two. So what we can do here is we can listen to management conference calls. We can hear them talk about what they're doing with capital, what they plan to do with, with their capital. Uh, we can also look for buyback announcements. So mo- most of the time, what ends up happening is a company will announce a $500 million, billion-dollar buyback program And then they'll execute that over time. So you can look at, well, they just announced a buyback program. That doesn't mean they're going to buy back all of the stock right now. But is this a good time for the company to be buying back the stock? Um, The only problem with all of that is that it it may be a little bit misleading. It could be a little bit misleading. I'll put it that way. It could be a little bit misleading to listen to what managers are saying sometimes because all CEOs, all managers are going to want to think of themselves as good capital allocators. They're not going to want to get on the, get on the conference call, uh, get in those presentations and say, eh, we don't really know what we're doing with this capital. We're probably going to waste it. They're, they're going to frame it as if they're good capital allocators. So I think for this one in particular, you do, have to, you do have to look back at what they did. So you want to combine what they did with what they say they're going to do. So I think for a company that has a history of poor capital allocation that's now talking as if they're going to be better capital allocators. They need to prove that out. Uh, whereas a company that has a history of good capital allocation, and again, it's, it's those things that you talked about, making smart acquisitions, doing buybacks at the right times, paying dividends when there's not good investment opportunities within the company. Uh, when, it, when a company has a good history of capital allocation, then when they're talking on conference calls, in presentations about ways that they're going to spend money, I think you can have a little bit more trust in what they're saying. And while we're on the topic of the checklist that we talked about uh, earlier this week, one thing that I wanted to emphasize as well was another point on that checklist, which was a company's clear communication on its vision and strategy. Uh, this is one of those soft points. I mean, this, this isn't even something that's, that's sort of like, well, we can look back at, at numbers from history and get an idea of this. Uh, this is one of those squishy things, which in the past... I might have ignored, but I think is, is more important than, than a lot of people give it credit for. And one example I'll point out here on this is Wells Fargo. Now, Wells Fargo 
of the big four, uh, of the big four big banks, uh, or the four big banks, however you want to phrase it, they navigated the financial crisis probably the best. And I don't want to say it was just because they're clear about their vision and strategy, but I'm not going to say it wasn't because of that. And let me, let me read you. This is from the company's annual report. They state this very clearly right at the beginning. Uh, they say, our vision is to satisfy all our customers' financial needs, help them succeed financially, be recognized as the premier financial services company in our markets, and be one of America's great companies. I, I think ha- being clear and knowing what your purpose is uh, like that can be very, very helpful for a company. And so as much as we want to look at, at past numbers and the, the side of things that we can calculate, I don't think we want to overlook those soft things either. Moving on to the next question. Next question comes from Anders, and Anders asks, do you think long-term short selling can be a viable sort of investing? What are the upsides, downsides of it compared to normal investing? Have you ever sold short something, and if so, how did it work out? So, let me start, I'll put it this way to start out. I'm probably not the best person to answer this question just because I tend to be an optimist, and so it's hard to be a short seller when you're optimistic about companies, about the economy. And I'll tell you what, if we look back historically, being an optimist and an investor has worked out pretty darn well. There are a lot of companies that haven't panned out. There are a lot of companies that had big promises that ended up folding or not performing as well as as people thought. But if we look back over any decently long stretch of time, the economy uh, has grown, both the U.S. economy, the global economy. Uh, businesses have continued to be introduced. Uh, big businesses that are already around, many of them continue to grow. So generally speaking, I think optimism works. Now, I wouldn't say that there's no place for short selling, though. I think that there's definitely a place for short selling. Uh, I think one example of where short selling works out well, and, and I think is actually useful for the economy and for the market, is the we'll call it the research-heavy short sellers who are looking for uh, accounting gimmicks, for frauds, um, and really pour over both accounting statements, regulatory statements, as well as actually do other sorts of investigations where they're visiting company factories, where they're visiting headquarters, um, talking to management to the extent that management will talk to somebody like that. And I think a great example of that are the folks at Muddy Waters who have uh, done a ton of work over in the Chinese market uncovering some, some really bold frauds uh, in the Chinese market, and they're continuing to do that. So I think that is one very useful form of short selling. Uh, and another form of short selling that, that I think is legitimate but more difficult uh, is short selling based on, on price, on valuation. So we, we had recently put up on the full website, uh, and, and we had it on, on this show as well, an interview with uh, Case Capital's uh, managing partner, Whitney Tilson. And Whitney talked about being short 3D systems, the, the 3D printing stock. Now, to me, 3D systems has, has certainly looked overvalued or, or very richly valued, let's say. The problem with, with shorting based on valuation concerns, and, and Whitney talked about being too stubborn to, to, to let go of this position, and now it's starting to work in his favor, but as the saying goes, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Now, that's a bit of a cliche these days, but it can turn out to be, to be pretty applicable 
when you have a you know a growth stock, a story stock that a lot of people are behind, and 3D Systems certainly has been one of those. So there's the reality there of what 3D Systems is, is probably worth today and, and what it will grow to in the future. But then there's also the, we'll call it the equal reality of what, of, of what the market will, will treat it as and, and what excited investors will treat it as today. Um, and, and short selling a stock like that, I think, can be, uh, can be a difficult proposition. So I hope that answers Anders' question. Uh, and on that, we will... Oh, I should mention, before we move on to the next question, Anders also asked about a... This was a Game of Thrones reference to, to the Iron Bank in Game of Thrones. Uh, regular uh, listeners to WTMI will know that I have yet to start watching Game of Thrones, and I've, I've mentioned that a few times. Still has not happened. But when I do, Anders, I'll be back, and we'll talk Iron Bank. On that note, we'll move on to the next question. Next question comes from Glenn. Glenn writes... I've heard on a few of your podcasts suggestions for great investing books. I would like to recommend a book called The Wealthy Barber. Although this is written by a Canadian for Canadians, it has a wealth of basic information that anyone can use to help them begin to understand investing and how to get started. This is no, there is no discussion of technical analysis, ratios, or financial statements. This book basically promotes the idea of starting early and paying yourself first and simply doing something rather than sitting on the sidelines and waiting because you either don't know how to start, uh, don't know how to start investing, or you're waiting for the get-rich-quick deal of a lifetime. It's also a very good story and easy to read because it's written as a story, not a how-to book. So not really a question here, but I wanted to bring this one uh, to the WTMI uh, listeners because I thought it was a, it's a great suggestion. Uh, maybe a book we should all have on our shelves. So I appreciate the email, Glenn. And in the spirit of getting started with investing. I was thinking about, well, if I was recommending to a first-time investor uh, a financial stock for them to start off on, there's probably, there's probably easier stocks out there in the market than a financial stock to start off with, but we love financial stocks here, so I was thinking financial stocks. If I was to get somebody started off with a financial stock, I think my number one recommendation would probably be Markel. Uh, and this is for a couple of reasons. Number one, I, I think Markel is a good buy today. So I would feel comfortable recommending that they start off buying some Markel because I would feel like that's a, a, a good stock to own right now. I also think Markel does a great job communicating what it is, what it does, uh, and just keeping investors up to date on what's going on at the company. Uh, crack open the Markel annual report and it's a very different experience than, than opening and, and trying to read the annual reports for a lot of other companies. It's very readable. It's very clear. And you get a really good picture of, uh, of what Markel is doing there. Um, and, and then I think Markel has a management team uh, through Steve Markel and Tom Gaynor that you can trust. And, and, I, and that is very, very important in owning a company. Particularly when you're, when you're getting started in investing, you don't want a management team. You don't want to be working with a management team that you maybe have to try to second guess or parse their words. Um, outside of Markel, the insurance, so the insurance industry, particularly specialty insurance industry that Markel plays in, maybe can be a little bit more complex of a business. For a simpler financial business, a banking business, I think PNC could be a good starter stock as well. Uh, again, good management here. I think a uh, good strategy going forward, harnessing the, the 
the technology that's available for banking institutions today and trying to prune back its, its brick and mortar, its branch presence to, I guess you could say, optimize the bank's overall cost structure. Um, but generally speaking, PNC, unlike some of the other bigger banks, is a, is a simpler bank, doesn't have as many big complex businesses, I think is more of a pure lender. So again, I think uh, potentially a good financial starter stock for somebody just starting out. All right, going on to the next question, the next and final question, I should say. This question comes from Frank. Frank writes, would you please explain what's going on with Fannie and Freddie, of course referring to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Every analyst was saying that their common shares would go to zero, and since then, they were just going up. I don't know what to believe anymore. That is a, that's a great question. That's a great question, and to some extent, I don't even know where to start with this. It's, it is, it's, a, it's a tricky situation here. Uh, I'll put it that way for starters. There is value in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as operating companies. They are, they're running businesses. They're serving a market. Um, they are making money. They're profitable today. They're, they're actually very profitable today. So, so Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as companies are valuable. Now, the question is, Will, will the government relinquish its, uh, its claim to all of the profits for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? This is a claim that the government ended up, uh, depending on who you ask, let's, let's call it finagling, <laughs> finagled this, uh, this claim through the, through the stakes that, that the government built up in Fannie and Freddie during the financial crisis. So the question is, does the government relinquish that? I don't know whether that happens. If you, if you listen to what Congress says, if you listen to what the president has said, you would think that that is, is pretty unlikely. So what it boils down to is what is the probability that the, that the government puts Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac back into private shareholders' hands? Because then you can, you, then you, you can start to calculate, okay, here's the value of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and then here's the probability that investors actually get them back. And then, you can, and then you can put some sort of value on the shares today. So probability weighted value there. And when we think about scenarios for what ends up happening to Fannie and Freddie, there are three that in my mind are, are probably the most prominent. Um, maybe we could say the most likely. I think there's the, the scenario where the government just continues sort of the status quo of having Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as quasi-government entities or, or government entities, really, that are passing on their profits to the government um, and potentially even rolling the two entities into one. So you don't have a separate Fannie and Freddie. You just have one, one group rather than having them c- compete against each other. Another scenario is you actually have the government wind down Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and have something else take its place in the mortgage market. And then a third scenario is, of course, the government decides to put Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac back on the private market. And that's the scenario that most investors are hoping for, or most investors that own Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac preferred or common shares today. So that's the, that's the basic, that's the high-level overview of it. It gets way more complex uh, from there. But Frank, I hope that helps uh, address uh, what you can believe today. Uh, closing out the show... Uh, I just want to thank the WTMI uh, listeners and viewers for all of the great feedback we've gotten. Of course, 
For those that have tuned in this week, you've seen the transformation, the beginning of the transformation of this show. Uh, Mondays, we will continue to have a financials-focused WTMI. Tuesdays, we had the consumer goods crew uh, in here talking about consumer-facing companies. Uh, we had, I believe it was the, the healthcare guys here on Wednesday, and then energy here on Thursday. And then this Friday slot going forward will typically be uh, an interview. We'll try to get some really good interviews slotted in here for you. Um, we heard from we heard from a bunch of the listeners. D actually wrote in and said, "You are the Wharton version of Wayne's World," which is about the best compliment I think that David and I could have gotten. And she even said that she bought an iPod just to listen to the show. Uh, Michael said to me, "I think you should add suspenders to your wardrobe in the spirit of the German website." I am, of course, going to be helping out starting up a, a German website for the fool. Uh, Frank wrote, "I'm looking forward to the new WTMI, but I will pour some out." For what once was, of course, we, we always encourage pouring out a little liquor for WTMI. And finally, Don wrote, I am really enthused about the new format that David, and, that David announced on today's Market Foolery. And I'm right there with you, Don. I, I'm really excited about this new format. And, and I think it'll bring a much broader uh, spectrum of investments to the WTMI community. Looking to next week, I hope everybody enjoys their Memorial Day. We will have an all-interview week next week, so we have some great interview, um, some great taped interviews lined up uh, to bring to you next week. So definitely, definitely tune in next week for those. Until then, I'm Matt Kopenheffer. Uh, I'll see you later.